It's episode 54 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the show is Agile consultant and coach Emily Weber. She wrote a book called Building Successful Communities of Practice, and we're going to discuss ways in which people can get better at their work by tapping into or building support networks around them. Emily, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Hey, um, do I sound okay? Yeah. Good, good. I got a new microphone, uh, and I'm trying it out now. I think it's a, it's a let me say, hang on, because people will really care about this. It's a Audio Technica ATR2100 Cardio Dynamic Microphone. I'm very excited about it. It sounds really fancy, but it cost me like, I don't know, 60 pounds or something. So, um, but my, and the reason I mentioned this is because my old microphone literally blew up. I didn't do it. To be fair, my son uh, plugged my fancy podcasting microphone into his gaming PC and like something popped and it was just done. It was gone. Like no, like no other computer could see it after that. I don't know what happened. Um, But he is, uh, he has decided that when he grows up, he wants to become a YouTuber. And so now he has started a YouTube channel and is recording himself playing video games. Fantastic. Yeah, I think so. It's been actually, it's been really cool. Like I'm kind of, I mean, I think he's a little bit young for being, uh, uh, on social media. So we, so we're very careful about that stuff. Uh, but a, a really kind of motivating way for him to learn about creating digital content. So he's like learning video editing and he's, uh, I taught him to use, uh, Figma for graphic design so he could make little intro screens and things like that. And, um, uh, and it's been really fun. It's really cool. So he'll be uh, bypassing you in no time teaching you things because so. I'm ready to wind down here so like for, for somebody else to take over that's what happens when you get to a I think a certain point in your career you're like okay kids all you now uh, I will I will mentor <laughs> uh, but anyway it's been really cool to it's been really cool to watch him kind of explore that and um, and build an audience he has up to seven subscribers already so I'm very proud, wow. very proud of him. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, sorry. Uh, so anyway, that's the new microphone. I'm, I'm very happy with it. Uh, how are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. Good. I'm doing fine. And I appreciate you being on the, on the program. I saw you give a talk recently, uh, at mind the product. Uh, and I thought it was fantastic. I thought you did a great job and especially considering it can be a relatively intimidating environment there in the, in the Barbican with all those people and the giant, uh, yeah. auditorium. How, how'd that, how'd you feel about it? It's a, it's a, it was an amazing conference actually. It's a it's a big conference, um, yeah. but uh, it's a super supportive community. So it was it was really fascinating, and, and I saw people there from from like span of my career. It was uh, astounding oh. at how it brought so many people together. But um, it was it was a great thing to be a part of, definitely. Yeah, I had Martin Erickson, the founder of the whole thing, on the show. I think just the last episode, uh, and you really tell like there is there is a. Um, there's a sort of warmth to the whole thing. It just, it, it feels much more like a community than it does like some corporate event, which, um, which I really appreciate. Uh, well, they, they also, I mean, they, they treat their speakers really well, which yeah. not all conferences do. Um, so it's, it's, it's really nice to be part of something where you feel like, uh, you're appreciated. Yeah, that's true. They do a really good job of that. And you mentioned you had people from kind of all parts of your career. I was kind of looking over what you have done in the past and saw that you were, you spent some time with the government, the government digital service. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And actually, that's where I uh, started. I guess that's where I started bringing my community knowledge from outside work into inside work and actually putting it to use inside organizations. 
Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I've had a couple of friends in the design community that have done, I guess, a sort of tour of duty at the gov- government digital service. And as a immigrant into your fine country, I have made use of many of those government digital services. Uh, and I find the whole thing really fascinating and frankly, pretty progressive considering how difficult it must be to get things done in a, any particular government. Uh, how kind of consistent and uh, easy to use. Everything seems to be. Um, I'm just like, tell me a little bit about your experience with all of that. Well, um, yeah, I think uh, particularly from a design point of view, government digital service has been a real shift in the way that government thinks about building services and actually thinking about building services rather than uh, building systems or digitizing things. Yeah. Um, and really taking a user first approach. And it's, I think it's really changed the industry a lot in terms of, uh, how how we do things like user research and how we do things like design thinking and bringing that together with agile thinking and lean startup thinking um, and actually creating things that that work for people, which is uh, obvious for a lot of people, but a massive shift for a lot of large organizations, particularly government. Mm, mm, so you saw that firsthand inside? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and it's it's just, it's amazing how that's kind of rippled out into, from GDS, which was kind of in the, in the center, um, as part of cabinet office into lots of other departments and into lots of other countries um, and lots of people taking that on uh, and replicating the way that that works. But also as I, as I mentioned, yeah, how it's, how it's kind of rippled out into the way that other organizations do things as well. I think we're in this kind of great sweet spot at the moment where there's lots of really fascinating work in, in digital. Um, and there's a real kind of shift in the way that we do things that, that does make it really interesting and does mean that we can actually build things that people love to use what do you think was the motivating factor at least in the gds to to sort of make that shift do you have a sense of that yeah i mean a lot of it came from uh there was a report done uh by martha lane fox uh right at the beginning which was a four-page report um which was which was just about um about revolution (laughs) about changing (laughs) the way that that government do things And, and she she had a background um in in building digital products and services uh, and that was that was a real drive. Plus, um, it's very difficult to do that thing unless you've got real support uh, from the top as well. So there was, there was some key people um, and a key minister in Francis Maud at the time um, who really wanted to push that, who who managed to get a, a bunch of great people together that were able to to make a difference. Interesting. And so your work, uh, it seems to me, beyond the sort of like how do you get a uh, a team or or an organization to be a, more agile and to follow these these sort of practices. Um, but it seems much more focused on, uh, uh, communities within organizations. And, and I was wondering if you could just sort of give me kind of your framework for how you think about that. Yeah. So I, I, um, I'm coming from an agile delivery background myself. Um, and my focus tends to be around people and how teams and people work together. I often find that that's, although that's, that's really important and quite difficult. Teams often get blocked by the stuff that's around it. Uh, so I often end up finding myself in a, in looking across across the organisation how organisations are structured. Um, I I, th- I think that I I end up being in uh, thinking about sustainability for organisations. So uh, when when organisations are new and in this place where there's lots of very experienced people coming together doing lots of great stuff, um, that's all that's all great, but that's that isn't sustainable. So. Um, I find myself in this area where it's, I want to make sure that people have, um, 
people have the support that they need and people have the ability to grow in their roles and, and develop in their careers and communities of practice really really comes into its own to help do those things uh so there's there's five things that i tend to talk about with communities of practice and it's about support networks it's about learning and development it's about uh, knowledge sharing um scaling common approaches and allowing people to collaborate and create better practices so really really about them owning what their craft is mm. uh, i like that uh and how, I, essentially how do we get better at what we do yeah how do you yeah. get better at what you do in uh surrounded by people that do something very similar to what you do Ah, see, this is so interesting. Like, I got this email last week uh, from a student uh, that I that I had interacted with through an intern program that we do at True Ventures, where I work. Uh, and he's writing me back saying, like, all right, I'm back at school, and I've been offered this job at a uh, startup. He's a designer, and he's like, what should I do? And I'm like, well, you should get a lot of advice, and not just from me. Um, but it, what... The, the way I framed sort of how I think about that is that, first of all, staying in school or not staying in school is a separate decision from whether you should take this job and go make that decision first. But uh, what I focused on was you are a designer and it's your very first job. And should that job be at a startup where you will literally be the only one who practices what you practice? Mm -hmm. And my question for him was then, how do you get better at being a designer? Right. Like I did. And, and, and I, you know, I'm not necessarily an advocate for organized education. I wasn't very good at it. And, uh, and I tended to be a little more self-taught and I, and I, you know, so I think like staying in school may not be the best way to become a better designer, but certainly being all alone, uh, with your craft in a very fast paced environment also may not be, mm -hmm. um, uh, and I have had many designers that I have worked with in the past that said like, oh my God, I hated working at the agency, but boy, was it valuable for two years because, you know, they, they're working with a bunch of people that do what they do and a, a diversity of different types of work and lots of interactions with various stakeholders and like all of that kind of stuff. And I was like, ah, so when I started thinking about like the, the kind of stuff that you've been talking about, this the community of practice, I'm like that is one way in bigger organizations or maybe across uh, a bunch of smaller organizations for to be able to do that. And um, anyway, uh, yeah, uh, and it's and definitely because it's it's we we learn you know we learn from others around us. We learn from how people do things. It gives us a chance to do, um, particularly when you're when you're um, doing something like design, where you can do you can have design crits and you can have feedback. And feedback is a really powerful way to learn. Um, that whole thing about working in startups, working. Um, versus working in large companies um, there's a whole raft of things to think about there yeah. um, and there's a lot of i think there's a lot of people have different um needs and people like working in organizations at different stages um, and it, it can be quite hard when you're early on in your career uh, to take something like that though so, and he also he also mentioned he was 21 years old and terrified that he was so far behind in his career oh wow <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I hear that all the time. Like I'm 17 year olds old, and I don't know JavaScript yet. I'm like, oh, just <laughs> take it easy. You got a lot to learn. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, and I think that um, so we yeah we there's there's you know there's a lot to be said for formal training, but that only takes you so far, right? Um, and there's you need to you need to be able to try things out. You need to be able to bounce things off people, and 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 feedback, as I said before, is like it's super important. Like, is this going right or is this not going right? Um, is a really powerful way to find out whether, yeah, to learn, find out whether we're doing things properly. 
Absolutely. And I've, and I've also found that, uh, especially in, in the, the design profession, feedback is a developed skill. And it's mm-hmm. something that takes a lot of time to learn how to do. Uh, and other people in the organization, engineers or marketing or whomever, uh, don't often have that skill as applied to critiquing design. Which is, you know, very different from doing code reviews, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, 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 for sure. I think that's really important. Developers have a whole bunch of practices, um, that are kind of recognized in a lot of places that, uh, that a lot of other disciplines can learn from. So things like pair programming, mm-hmm. you know, working on, working on problems together, um, and things like code reviews, you know, it's, it's not many, not a lot of other disciplines formally review their work before it goes out there. Um, and I think that's, it's a, there's some good practices to learn from. That's ah, interesting. Yeah. What, what does pair design really look like? Uh, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I have, I think, practiced a bit of that in that a lot of the work that I have done with teams in the past, uh, very early stages of new features is all done on the whiteboard with two or three people. Um, so that might be, you know, some where, where, where we would go through like 10 different ideas for mm-hmm. how, for, for the, the underlying underlying metaphor of a, of a particular set of features or something like that. Just fill up whiteboards, spend two or three hours, like doing all that kind of work. Um, not quite the same as, as pair programming where it is literally every character is, you know, like being scrutinized by two pair eyes. But, um, but there's, there are some parallels there, but I think that's really interesting looking to other disciplines, uh, methodologies and applying them to the ones that we're doing, of course, is a great way to be creative. There's another one that um, I think is which I which I often tell communities that they should take advantage of. So um, some developers do things like um, coding carters or coding dojos, where they'll they'll take a problem um, and they try and solve it within a safe group of people um, in a way that they're not putting it out there in the live environment. And there's a community with one of my one of my clients who does things like uh, front end challenges. So they'll they'll take away a challenge, learn a new way of doing something, and then share their experiences back with each other. And it's this real opportunity to actually practice doing something that you're, you're um, practicing skills that you're going to need later. So, mm. you know, not practice practicing your skills or growing your skills always on the job, particularly if you're in a high pressured kind of agency type environment where you've got to learn really quickly and produce something at the same time. But actually stepping back and having a chance to practice something before you, you kind of unleash it on your clients. Interesting. Interesting. All right. I have. A bunch of questions, especially about your the kind of five parts of your framework. Uh, but we're going to take a little break first. And I am going to tell you about a sponsor uh, that we have had for uh, a few episodes now. So people should be coming familiar with uh, our friends at Linode. Linode do a suite of powerful hosting options with prices starting as little as $5 a month. So these are virtual servers in the cloud. Uh, that you can uh, go to their website, click a couple of buttons, type a couple of names, and in under a minute, have a server that you can do anything with. They have hundreds of thousands of customers that are using their service who are all serviced by a 24-7 support team. So with this support team, you can email them, call them, or even chat over IRC if that's your thing. Uh, and you have access to this whole entire Linode community. They know how important it is to get the help that you need when you need it, no matter what time of day it is. And they have a suite of amazing guides and support documentation to give you the reference when you need it. Uh, that is not just how do you use a particular piece of software, but how do you use it on the Linode service and how is it all integrated? It's really robust. Linode's, uh, also has a control panel to allow you to deploy, deploy, boot, resize, snapshot, clone virtual servers. Uh, and it's all, like I said, just a couple of clicks. Um, you also, 
they also have implemented two-factor authentication. Uh, so you can type in your code. You know that your um, server and the data that you have on it is safe. Uh, right. So these servers are great uh, for all the kinds of things that you can do in the cloud. I've mentioned these before. Hosting databases, mail servers, VPNs, Docker containers, uh, Git servers, just about anything that you can do. You can do on a Linode server. Uh, and by the way, uh, this is not something I believe I mentioned before, but uh, they're hiring. So if this sounds super cool, you can go get a job over there as well. You can go to linode.com slash careers to find out. But if you want to sign up, you can get a server with a gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month, which is insanely cheap. Uh, they go, uh, they scale incredibly from there and get huge servers starting even at uh, 16 gigs of RAM and up to uh, much higher than that. As a listener of the show, if you sign up at linode.com slash presentable, You'll be supporting the show, and you'll also get $20 towards your Linode plan. So you can get that $5 server free for four months. That's crazy. And seven-day money-back guarantee if you don't like it at all. Get all your money back. Nothing to lose. Linode.com slash presentable to learn more. Sign up and take advantage of $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for supporting our show and for supporting Relay FM. All right, Emily, I want to know a little bit about this idea of creating a support network. And what that really means, like I, you know, I'm feeling familiar with that in personal life, having friends and family around you, uh, the people that you can count on when things are going well, the people you can celebrate with when things are going great. Uh, what does that mean inside of a professional organization, though? So uh, I'm, I often um, think about a book that I read a while ago. There's a book uh, called Social by a guy called Matthew Lieberman that talks about our need, a kind of fundamental need to connect with other people um it's based on this idea that actually as humans and because of the size of our brains we're born um whilst we're still developing so we're born without the ability to look after ourselves mm. so uh he looks at the maslow's hierarchy of needs um that talks about food and shelter kind of being our number one need uh, what matthew lieberman talks about is the fact that actually our, our number one need is to connect with somebody else that can provide us with food and shelter so we've got this this innate need to connect with other people and uh, we do this everywhere we go and we do this in organizations naturally anyway um you always have that you know the friend that you go to lunch with <laughs> that you uh, yep. you know vent with <laughs> um, <laughs> share your problems with um, and often people that do the same role as each other will start to connect with other folk as well um that that happens with some people that doesn't happen with everybody and and there's a line that Matthew Lieberman talks about which uh, which says which I read and, and rang really true for me was that uh, it says absence of support is taken as a sign of mass rejection so um uh. and, and I felt this right in in organizations where you think they you're not being looked after no one's supporting you you actually think well this organization doesn't care about me see that's interesting so it was absence of support feels like rejection yeah. that is it, it, that is like it's not like I'm responding to a negative thing. I'm responding to a lack of a positive thing. Mm -hmm. And we turn that into a negative thing because we all have that sort of inherent human negativity bias, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, the fact that like nobody's helping me out, like I guess I'm on my own, like uh, this kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah. And and some, you know, some organizations see it as like a badge of honor that they, they throw you in at the deep end and watch what happens. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, not not particularly helpful. So I I, I believe that without support it's it's a real demotivator um so having having other people around us that either we can vent with or celebrate with or you know just somebody that you can go people that you can go for lunch with um is is something that we really need to keep us motivated in our roles interesting and so uh then so you take that at the 
like the thing that connects us could be the craft that we practice, or is that not necessarily always the the support network? So uh, with communities of practice, I tend to go through through practice. So it is okay. it is through right. the crafts because there's there's some added bonuses to that as well, um, which includes you know. I'm working on this really difficult problem. Sure. Can someone right. can someone help me through it? Uh, interesting. And so so that does sort of connotate a, a level of scale, right? That mm-hmm. that there would be enough of these people in my organization. Uh, the, the reason I, I mention that is because uh, design uh, by the nature of the craft tends to be underrepresented in most organizations. Uh, mm-hmm. and that is not that there's not enough designers. I mean, that may be the case. It's just that you don't need as many to make the things that we make, or at least that's generally how organizations are, are staffed. Um, my, in my experience, it tends to be in product groups, six or seven engineers, uh, to one designer. And that's, you know, very roughly it, and entirely depends on the nature of the organization. Uh, and some are much more like one designer to 15 engineers or, th- or things like that. So what you end up with is um, uh, often these people practicing design in isolation uh, or the a very small group of designers in a, in a much larger organization that feel unempowered. Yeah. And and actually, even that that's the fact that you've, you've generally got one designer for you know, a, a number of engineers, even within a team, is even more reason why they need to connect with other designers across across an organization if they exist. Um, or if that doesn't exist, fi- finding other designers to connect with in other places. Uh, because cause the, the engineers ge- generally have people they can talk to because they're on the team with other people. Right. Uh, so do you do you see this, these sort of support networks as, as formalized things, that this is something that organizations should provide? Or is this much more kind of social or under the radar? How does that work? So there is uh, there's a value to organisations and communities of practice, um, even if it even if that value is just that people stay motivated. So I, I do think that they need to support them. Um, but so there's a there's an informality about the communities. Um, so formally supported, but not um, necessarily formally structured. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Uh, there's the, the communities themselves need to be people that that want to you know want to meet up, want to talk to each other, and, and are getting some kind of value from it. So there is um, there's a need for them to be non hierarchical, and there's a need for them to be um, uh, voluntary as well. Hmm. So they don't tend to work when a or when an organisation says, right, you are now community, go go in that room and meet <laughs> once a week. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, that that doesn't tend to work very well. So I think it's 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 useful for organisations to uh, recognise them and support them in some way, but but not force people to take part. Um, and the organisations I tend to work with um, are supporting them in some way, or I wouldn't be there anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. So interesting. One thing that pops into my mind is that in some of the bigger companies, right, like I've worked for Google and I've worked for Adobe, uh, and there are, of course, str- uh, Strong, strongly organized design teams or, or a design org or something uh, that may have uh, a couple hundred or, or more people in it in even larger organizations. So how would a, like a support network differ from like, no, I, I, like, you know, we have a design team and, and there's managers and directors and a VP at the top. Uh, so there's, there, there's our design community. Um, or, do you, or do you make a distinction between the hierarchy of reporting and the, uh, the necessity of an, of support. 
Yeah, and this is this is an interesting one because um, I mentioned about communities being non-hierarchical, and and there can be a challenge sometimes if you're if you have a community that that also has a hierarchy attached to it as well. Um, some of that's around it being a place where people feel safe enough to talk um, and open enough uh, to say what's on their mind, so that they can actually you know learn from each other. I've uh, the way that I have been describing it lately is there's a there's a formality about the um, practice so there's design that might have some hierarchy within it and there's also a community element of that um, and one is formal and one is informal mm-hmm. but it might it might have the same people in it <laughs> <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah uh, sure 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 um, and so if if somebody is sort of listening to this going you know like the, god this is what I really want this is what feel, feels like missing in in my professional life is a is a a community of practice, a support network around me. Um, how, where do you even start? Like, how, how do you get going? What, what would you recommend? So uh, the first thing to do with anything like this is to actually get a bunch of people together that have a common interest. Um, so I, you know, I think a community can work with anywhere from three people up to uh, probably around 100, 150, mm. um, if we're thinking in, in Dunbar's number type numbers. Right. Um, so actually just getting people together um, is the first step. So so you can get lots of lots of benefits from communities of practice, but actually you can't get any benefit of from them if you don't start to build some kind of trust um, and start to feel some kind of sense of community. So just, just grabbing some people and getting them together. Um, then what can be really handy to do is to get people to actually just start talking about what they're up to. So if you get a group of people together in a room, they start talking about what they're up to, then other people will recognize the similar challenges that they have or Mm. start to say, Oh, I'm doing the same thing. Maybe we can work on something. So that's a really good way just to start to get to know each other Um, and, and do some social things. So that's, that's really, that's really where I would start is, is just, just getting people together and seeing what happens and shared experiences. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned learning and development, knowledge, sharing, common approaches, things like that. That all feels like, uh, as you are sharing experiences and patterns start to emerge, you start to say like, Oh my gosh, maybe we should focus on this stuff for a while. Yeah. And, and some of the, I mean, when I'm working in organizations with communities, one thing that I think is really important is that if you've got a bunch of people that do a role, it's important that they, you know, they own the quality, they own the standards of what it means to do that role. Um, so I, with with some of my clients, I've been doing things like the communities have been doing, um, identifying the skills they need to do that role um, and using that to see where some of their gaps might be and, and to create professional development plans and, and things like that. If a community can generally see where the gaps are, they can use that to say, oh, actually, a bunch of us uh, really want to learn about this thing we think it's an important skill, but we don't have it. They can decide what to do with that. So they can decide whether to uh, do some training or do some research as a community, or maybe one person in the community has some skills that another person doesn't, so they can pair up or they can learn from each other. Um, but thinking about um, learning learning needs as a community means that actually you can you can you can work in that way. You can do that. You can learn from each other. You can learn with each other rather than treating everyone as kind of an individual. Um, to train separately. Hmm. Interesting. You, while remaining non-hierarchical, that seems like it might be a bit of a challenge. Aren't, don't we sort of gravitate towards hierarchy anyway? Uh, I guess a little bit. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I do. I mean, I I do like uh, to. I do like to suggest to communities as they as they grow to start thinking about some just some kind of principles about how they want to engage with each other. Um, you know, creating a safe environment where everyone can speak and you know not shouting each other down. Um, setting some kind of rules of engagement can be quite useful to do at some point in time. That's so. That's actually the second time you've used the word "safe" to talk about. Uh, yeah, I think you were talking about it uh, in the context of like dojos and coding as well, mm-hmm. right? Uh, to get a group of people around that you feel uh, safe, uh, safe enough, I guess, to be vulnerable to talk to talk about the things that are you know you're concerned about. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how to keep a group of people like that uh, in in a safe place like that? That feels like those are a set of skills that, um, again, are developed and not 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 necessarily just inherent people. Yeah, I do. I, I tend to see actually in most uh, most communities there are a couple of people that are quite they're naturally community minded. Um, um, I think what's good to do is is to give them is to help them become community leaders and give them. Um, some space to do that mm-hmm. uh, and I think that can help there's there's even there's even things like you know when when you meet meeting in a place where you can close the door or you can get away from maybe some other folks so you can have the right kind of conversations um, and some of it's just uh, seeing seeing what happens over time and checking in and seeing if it's working or not interesting it's it's almost sounds like a, a set of community principles like uh like mm-hmm. like uh what's the uh, oh it's left my mind code of conduct at an mm-hmm. uh, at an event right I'm, I'm seeing almost all events now are very publicly post publishing their codes of conduct for how you're expected to behave at, at the event when you come and what will happen if you don't so is that you think that's part of it or does that come a little bit later is see i i as a yeah my background agile type person um think it that's something that I, I take from teams so it's good for a team to at the beginning when it's when it's setting up to talk about what the principles and how the team is going to behave um, I think that's useful for a community to do as well I've got an exercise that I use uh, with them which is the anti-problem which is taken slightly adapted taken from game storming uh, the game storming book uh, and it's 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 quite useful because it almost acts a little bit like a therapy session uh, so <laughs> which is great everybody loves that um so you talk about kind of the opposite so you say i say to people what's the worst possible community you could have ah uh-huh, yeah um, and it, it brings out all people's bad experiences from the past uh and then looking at that once you've once you've got through that and everybody's had their hugs and been through their tears um take that and say okay so based on that how are we going to behave so what is it that we're going to do Interesting. The The thing that I have found is that correcting behavior or at, uh, maybe not correcting is not the right word, but at least pointing out uh, behavior in real time while um, a, a meeting, a, a meetup of a community or a, or, a, or a team is doing their work can be incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. This idea of like, oh, we have to pause here because that thing you just did is right, and 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 finding the right way. And I have always kind of approached this from, like, uh, how do we train our leaders to be able to act out our values, right? So if you are in a position of leadership, you're running a meeting, or this is your team, or or whatever, you're the ultimate decision maker in a team, 
and uh and there is some behavior in a meeting that clearly is shutting somebody down or it's 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 violate or not violating but uh affecting overall the mm-hmm. the safeness of that space what what is the proper way to to make an adjustment in that behavior to both call it out but also not call it out in a way that's going to alienate the person who's doing it but it's also kind of respectful to the person that it was having that it was happening to I don't know. I feel like I'm a, a little bit in abstract territory here, but yeah, and it, and it totally depends on what it is, right? right? So, and and it totally depends on what the group is like. So, I've I've worked with some groups that are, you know, feel a, a super jokey with each other and are, and are quite and and can say things fairly upfront to each other, uh-huh. um, and others that don't feel like they're in that space. And I think that's it's in a community. That's one of the roles of of the community leaders, um, whoever that might be, right? Uh, to think about that. I I I did have a point in the past where um somebody who was very enthusiastic uh and would he'd kind of talk over people or almost yeah. tell them like they were wrong because he was so enthusiastic about his point of view right um and in that situation i i um spoke to them afterwards and said i know you're really enthusiastic but what you're doing is is causing this this and this to happen and it's stopping people being able to talk uh, but i think it's it's quite if at least if you've got some uh, some principles or some rules of engagement up there up up front, which people have co-created and signed up to, it gives you something to point at later on. If you don't have anything in place, it's it's much harder to Good point. call out certain behavior. Good point. Good point. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, plenty of experience with like not knowing what the rules are before I broke them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I do. I also think with, you know, communities and the same with teams as well. If you've got, you want to be doing some social things. So, you know, going, going out for drinks or going for lunch or, or, creating um getting people getting to know each other and building a bit of empathy helps too you know it helps it helps to do that kind of feedback later on yeah for sure um you talk a little bit about uh collaborating and oh and and this phrase that i really liked which was better practices Mm -hmm. rather than best practices i thought that was great yeah yeah it's um uh, the, the the quote you would have seen me talk about at Mind the Product uh, is a is from a guy called Alex Pentland, uh, who talks about communities uh, having an intelligence that's greater than the sum of the, or was different and and possibly greater than the intelligence of the individual members. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also that also speaks to the uh, the Aristotle research. Um, oh, Project Aristotle and, from Google. Yeah, yeah, and there's a woman called Anita. I always get it the wrong way around. It's either Anita Woolley Williams or Anita Williams Woolley. Um, and she talks about something very similar about the um, intelligence of, of groups. But um, what Alex Pentland talks about, which I think is really fascinating, is this, this idea that we, we all have experience and what collaboration is, is, is us building on top of each other's experiences. So if we spend all of our life in a vacuum um, or only talking to ourselves, everything that we know is based on what we experience. But actually, when you bring a community together, you, you bring all that experience into like this shared community brain, um, and that uh, can can mean you can create better things together. Um, yeah, and, interesting. Yeah. yeah, go on, go on. No, I was going to say that the, the best practice versus better practice. I, I I'm not a fan of the term best practice because it, it feels like we've done it. It's now. all figured out. We've got the this best, the best. One. Yep. No need, <laughs> we don't need to try no need to improve. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And actually, you know, we, we all know as we go through our careers, we, we might look back and go, oh, I don't know why I was doing that like that. That was a terrible thing. Um, and at the time, we think it's the, you know, it's the best thing we could possibly do. Um, and actually, as, as communities, 
uh, find new and different ways to do things, it should be encouraged that, you know, you are finding new and different ways to do things and, and, and better ways to face the challenges that you have as designers, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. You know, a lot of this stuff um, feels like on this podcast in the past, we have, we have discussed design systems um, and how organizations as they scale and get bigger and bigger can develop some set of tools to help them be more consistent across all of the digital and, and any frankly properties that design uh, has impact on Um, and how difficult that is because it's not like you just buy some tool and now we put all our stuff in it and now we're consistent, but that it's a very social and collaborative process to get the entire organization to embrace like these set of design rules that we're going to be using. Uh, and they tend to embody a set of what we have in the past called best practices. <laughs> and, um, so I wonder if there's another angle on this in a community of practice around like initiatives like that. Right. Where it might not necessarily just be all about our different craft. Um, and it's not a formal like program or product project with, with a project team and everything, but really a, a group of like minded individuals who wants to do something like a design system, uh, across an organization and say, like, we're going to be a community that does that kind of stuff and support each other in doing that and figure out what the better practices are and collaborate. Yeah, totally. And, and who, you know, who's better to, to be doing that than? the design community right so who's who's better to be and and because your design system or your patterns are, are going to continue to evolve because they won't they won't be fit for every purpose because every every product is new and exciting and different um if you, if the community is owning that they'll be updating that and iterating that as they go there is a that's where the real value i think uh, for organizations comes from with communities because they do start creating things that the organization can use so um a GDS, the uh, d- the service design manual, for example, has different sections on it that are owned by different communities. So they kind of take ownership of of writing and talking about the stuff that's relevant to their practice, um, or creating training um, for. So instead of an organisation having to go out and you know pay pay an external body to do training, they can internal folk can do that because actually they're the best place to do it. Mm, yeah. Wow, I just uh, Googled the uh, GDS service manual, and it's all online. This is fantastic. Yeah. Oh, my God, I had no idea. I'm going to read this whole thing. All right, I'm going to put a link to that. <laughs> might definitely. take you a while. <laughs> no, I know. But, uh, e- even as a template for how other organizations might do, you know, where do you start? Like, well, the, wow, so, here's a good so one. The other thing there, so, so GDS have created a whole bunch of design patterns, um, mm. and you're, one of the reasons why there's a lot of consistency across government um, websites and products services is because actually all that stuff is is available yeah so a lot of that stuff's available to download on github a lot of it's open yeah that's fantastic all right uh man i've got a lot here i'm going to put in the show notes uh let's see we've got matthew lieberman we've got uh we've got anita williams woolley alec pentland these are all great resources to learn more about like communities and how they can support one another uh uh i'm going to put a link to, in the show notes to your book as well which i think is a great resource for this what what else where else can people get better learn more what do you think where should we send it? um so oh there's there's a there's, there's a new new thing that went in my deck at mind the product actually which is from a woman called francesca francesca gino uh, talking about rebel talent, which uh, she says something really interesting. And this is one reason why I think it's super important that communities involve people uh, with lots of different experiences at different stages in their career. 
she talked about this idea that we, uh, as as we go through our career, as we kind of dig our furrow and grow our, our expertise, um, it makes us a lot less experimental. Yeah. Um, so we're more expert and less less experimental. But as as people are new in their careers, or maybe new to something, um, they've got a lot more a lot more experimental. It's a lot more experimentation. And she talks about this this kind of magic of creativity that happens between the expertise and the experimentation. So bringing folk together with lots of different experiences allows for things to happen that wouldn't be able to happen otherwise. Mm. Yeah, interesting. That's so great. I'm, so I'm quite I'm always quite keen that. And I, and I have seen uh, organizations where they start to almost break the community up by, you know, where people are in their career. And I think that's, that's, a, that's the wrong thing to do. <laughs> it's like lump everyone in together, learn something new from each other. What I hear you saying is because as we get older, we get much more conservative because we have so much more to lose. <laughs> is, that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. <laughs> maybe, yeah maybe that's what it is. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, so, the, so uh, yeah, the way that you... Um, approach recording might be very different from the way that your son does it yes yeah for example yeah <laughs> i know i know i'm trying to teach him like remember now everything you say you're putting on the internet and it's going to be there for a long time so anyway it's a it's a lot to teach our kids about how to be online uh and and their reputations and i know something that fortunately um we didn't have to do right because it wasn't it wasn't there yeah well hopefully when he's sort of more into his career this whole idea of the right to be forgotten will be uh much more of a thing everybody takes for granted and less of a new thing we're all kind of freaking out about so i don't know we'll see uh emily this is fantastic this is just a uh really kind of in, insightful into how we can get better at what we're doing uh by organizing the people around us I think that's great. Uh, I really appreciate you being on the show and sharing everything. Well, uh, oh yeah, let me see. Uh, we're going to send people to your website at emilyweber.co.uk. I'll have links to this in the show notes. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, tacitlondon.com. That's the, that's the company that you use as, um, sort of the, the structure for your consulting, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and the kind of things that you tend to do with organizations around improving process and, and whatnot, right? Yeah, it's that I do. I do a lot of uh, work around building communities of practice um, for organisations as well. So it's a, a mix of mix of agile consultancy um, and communities of practice consultancy. Interesting. That's fantastic. TacitLondon.com uh, mm -hmm. is where people can find out more about that. And that's also where you can find out more about building successful communities of practice, your book, um, and eWeber on Twitter so you can get some more followers. So there you go. Uh, Emily, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciated it. Thank you very much. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.